Good morning, High Point. And welcome to the final Sunday of Kevin's sabbatical. I'm sure he's excited to get back with us. Yeah, there's some claps there. Um, he's excited to get back. He'll be back here next week, up front, full of um, vigor. Is that a good word for it? He'll be full of vigor. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Tom Williams, and you still don't know me, just because you know my name, right? Just because we identify with a name, it doesn't say anything at all about us. But Jesus is different. Jesus, when he identifies by a name or a phrase, like we're going to talk about today, it tells us very much about Jesus. Uh, it tells us exactly what we need to know about Jesus, and the the phrases that we've been going through over the last months, couple months, is um, the I am statements. And today, we're going to be talking about I am the resurrection and the life. And if you have your Bible apps and or your Bibles, uh, you can turn to the book of John. The Gospel of John is the fourth book in the New Testament. And when you get there, you can turn to... Uh, chapter 11. That's where we're going to be spending all of our time today. Now, when Jesus uses a phrase such as, I am the bread of life, the water of life, um, and in this case, the resurrection of life, as Brad pointed out a few weeks ago, and Tyler did last week, uh, it's in the same context as when God identifies himself to Moses as I am. Moses has been commissioned by God to deliver the Israelites out of the, the clutches of Pharaoh. And Moses has a whole litany of excuses as to why he's not the right person. But toward once he's starting to realize this is going to happen, he says, look, the Israelites aren't going to even listen to me. They don't know me. Who do I tell them who sent me? And God says, I am. I am who I am. You tell them I am has sent you. Now, the Hebrew for this, and I hope I don't butcher this, but I probably will, is Eya Esher Eya. And within that phrase is certainly I am. But also, I will be, and I will be with you. And so, what God is telling Abraham, what God is telling Moses is that he is self existent. No, never, no creation, he's always existed. He's self existent. Sufficient. He has no needs. But also, he is ever-present. He's always going to be with you. So with that ammunition, he sends Moses off to save his people, Israel. Now, with God being in perfect relationship with himself, having no needs, we have to ask the question, well, I have to ask the question. You guys might not have to, but why does God reveal himself to us? Why does he give us his name? He has no needs. Well, a couple reasons, and I'll, and I'll just go through two of them. First of all, I think it's because God is a personal and a relational God. God has, like I said, he's been in perfect relationship with himself as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit, for eternity. He has no relational needs, perfect relationship. But God created us in his image, and therefore we are created with a need for relationship. He created us 
after that same model, needing relationship. And we will only find our best and greatest relationship with God. We look for it in all kinds of relationships. But our, the only true relationship that we'll ever be completely satisfied with is with God. Now look, I, you, know, you might be thinking, well, what about my wife? What about my kids? Brad, what about Asa? What about our grandkid, right? We love that little boy. Um, no, that will never bring the satisfaction that a relationship with God will bring. And that is why God reveals himself to us. Because we need that kind of relationship. And also, God is glorified when we acknowledge him, when we praise him, when we worship him. We've been created for that very reason. Isaiah 43, 7 says, Everyone called by my name and created for my glory, I have formed him. Indeed, I have made him. So that's why God reveals himself to us. That's why he tells us, gives us just a glimpse of his glory. And Jesus, just a few chapters ahead of this, in chapter 8, he's debating with the Pharisees. I air quotes because it's never a debate when Jesus is discussing truths with the Pharisees. But he's discussing with them, and the topic of Abraham comes up. Tyler spoke about this last week. And Jesus says, I tell you that, that Abraham, or yes, Abraham was looking forward to my day, my coming. He was glad and he saw it. And they, they scoff at Jesus and they say, you're not even 50 years old and what, you've seen Abraham? And Jesus puts the hammer down on him. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is saying, I'm God. I'm God. And of course, they... They try to stone him because in their mind, truth is blasphemy. But Jesus is revealing himself to them. And that's what I want us to kind of focus on as we go through this story. We're, we're going to be reading about um, the events leading up to and finally the raising of Lazarus. And so we're going to start in verse 1 and we'll read a section. But what I want us to hopefully glean from this is that Jesus is always motivated mostly by God's glory, by revealing God's glory to the world. That's his primary motivation in this. And I think that that's revealed between that and, and obviously him revealing himself as divine, as God. It's clear in this. So let's read. We're going to start in verse, um, we're going to start in verse one and we'll just read through seven and then a couple other verses after that. Now a man was sick, Lazarus, from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sister sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, this sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after that, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. Skip down to 14. So Jesus then told them plainly, Lazarus has died. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there 
so that you may believe, but let's go to him. So when Jesus first hears that Lazarus is ill, and this is a family, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus is a family very dear to Jesus. They took care of Jesus. They're true believers in him. They're believers in his ministry. They're believers that he's the Messiah. And he spent a lot of time with them. They fed him. They cared for him. And so this is a loving, it's almost like a family atmosphere with these people. He loves them. But Jesus, when he hears that Lazarus is ill, and you can imagine the disciples hearing him say this, he said, the sickness isn't going to end in death. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And that's the first peak that we have here of Jesus' main goal. And the fact that in his divinity, he understands the purpose of everything that goes on, everything that comes about in a way that mankind doesn't, humans don't. And he says, this is for the glory of God. Now, he says it won't end in death. But it does end in death, right? He's ill, and then he's dead for four days. Now, you can look at that and say, yes, but he would raised. He, he was going to be raised after four days. That is true. But let's think about this from a spiritual standpoint and the truth that Jesus is always looking to glorify God. I think what Jesus is saying is the peak culmination of this illness is not just the death. It's not even the death of Lazarus, okay? It is for God's glory and the glory of the Son. That's the highest goal or end game for Lazarus's illness. But not only that, he says in verse 15, another curious response to someone being ill and now at this point dying from that illness. Jesus says, I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe. That's the other motivation that Jesus has for not healing Lazarus. It's so that the faith of the disciples would be increased. The disciples are already followers of Jesus. They're already true believers, but they don't know Jesus fully yet. And so Jesus, again, revealing more of himself, revealing his divinity to them, his understanding of the, and purpose of why things come about. It's to increase their faith and belief in Jesus. We haven't read verse 45, but verse 45 gives us yet another purpose, another reason for why Lazarus is ill and dies. And that is so that others might become believers. In verse 45, it says, this is after Jesus has raised him. It says, therefore, because Lazarus died and was raised. Many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did believed in him. These Jews came to Martha and Mary to mourn with them, to grieve them. This was a prominent family. And so a lot of people from Jerusalem, which is a couple miles away, come to comfort them. They think that's why they're there. But God's purpose in it is for them to believe. He has a greater purpose for what we think is just a response to someone dying. It's a greater purpose. So Jesus understands the greater purpose, but Jesus also understands love differently than we do, 
right? And this is something I think we can pull out of this section of scripture. So, in, in verse 3, Martha and Mary send Jesus a message, and they don't say, Lord, Lazarus is ill. What do they say? They say, the one you love is sick. The one you love. It's like they're pulling on Jesus' heartstrings. They're trying to remind him, this is a person you love. And they're thinking, since you love them, you must heal them. And Jesus never makes that promise to them. But they're drawing a line and equating love with Jesus. I think we do very much the same thing. If we love somebody, we do whatever we can to help those people, right? But Jesus has a greater love and a totally different perspective. Their perspective um, is very limited, but it's a little self-serving, right? I mean, what they're in is they're in trouble, they're in dire straits, and they want the Savior that loves them to save them or deliver them from their circumstances. And I think, again, we're very much the same in that. When we pray, and we should pray, and we ask for deliverance from whatever situation that we're in, if we don't hear anything, it's very easy for us to think that God doesn't hear us, God doesn't care, he certainly doesn't love us, or you would deliver me from this circumstance that I'm in. But the text says, when Jesus heard, because he loved Lazarus, he let him die. That's what that says. Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So, you can substitute therefore, and you can even substitute because. Because he loved them, he stayed two more days, knowing that Lazarus would die. And by the way, Jesus didn't need to go to Lazarus to heal him. He can heal him with a word. He can heal him with a thought. He's already done that. You see, Jesus is both human, but he's also God. He's 100% man and 100% God. And he loves as a human 100%, but he also loves as God 100%. And John, in this section of scripture, he points out the difference between the, the kinds of love, right? So in verse 3, so the sister sent a message, Lord, the one you love is sick. This is phileo. Uh, this is brotherly love. It's the love and affection that we have for uh, family and friends. Uh, in my case, it's oftentimes friends more than family. But that's, that's the kind of love that we, we feel for one another. In verse 5, John says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. That love is agape love, divine love. And in this instance, and in all instances, Jesus' divine love, his agape love, overwhelms his human love, will always overwhelm. His love of the Father, his love of obedience to the Father, submission to his will, always overrules any human instinct. And we see that in the, the garden when he's asking God to take this cup from me. Human will is, I, I'm scared of this, I don't want to do this, but your will be done. And Jesus always spoke and acted in a way consistent with that. So Jesus loves in a very divine way, unlike humans love. That's another glimpse that we see of the glory of God in this section of scripture. Now, the title of this message is, of course, I am the resurrection 
and the life. And we're going to talk a little bit about that right now. That's found in Jesus' conversation with Martha after Lazarus dies. And it's found in verse 17 through 27. So let's, let's read through that. There's some really good stuff in here. So when Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. That's important because in Jewish culture, they believe that after a, a person died, their spirit hovered over them for over the body for three days, desiring to get back into the body. How they came up with three days, uh, I'm not exactly sure. I'm sure there's explanation. Maybe Tyler knows. He's a very smart man. But he's already been in the, day, uh, the tomb for four days, so he's dead, and his spirit can't return. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. So let's talk about Jesus' response to Martha's, I don't want to say accusation. It, it was really a confession of faith that he wouldn't have died had you been here. But in there, I think there's definitely uh, mingled with grief is uh, some frustration and confusion by, in Martha's life. But Jesus responds, and he says, I am the resurrection, and I am the life. Now, let's start there. He's very intentional with the order that he uses here, right? He says resurrection, life. Now, norm, most of us, when we think about resurrection, which is life from death, we think, well, you have to be alive first so you can die so then you can be resurrected. So why not life and then resurrection? Well, Jesus is speaking spiritually. Physically, he, he does have the power to resurrect, and he will be resurrecting Lazarus soon. But he's speaking right now to Martha, spiritually speaking. He's talking about life from death. He makes the way to live again. Every person ever born of man, if you hear anything in this, <laughs> let's hear this. Every person ever born of man is born dead. We are all of us born spiritually dead, spiritually separated from God, born with a sin nature. And so if that's the starting point for every person ever born of man, the first step is resurrection. If Jesus does not intervene in that state of being that we are all of us in, we are eternally dead, eternally separated from God. But thanks be to God that Christ did intervene. And he's telling Martha, I'm the resurrection. There is no life from death apart from me. It is in me. He then says, I'm the life. Jesus now, in a physical sense, is the author of physical life. He's speaking primarily spiritually here, but he is the author 
of life. Apart from Jesus, life doesn't exist. In John 1, 1 through 4, and Tyler, again, he touched on this. He stole a lot of my material last week. I'm just going to tell you that. Uh, John writes this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Life was in him, and that life was the light of men. Life is in and through Jesus. There is no life apart from Jesus, physical or spiritual. He embodies physical life. He embodies spiritual life. Most importantly, he offers and makes a way for eternal life, eternal reconciliation with God the Father. He then says, he who believes in me, though dead, shall live. That might be a little nod to Lazarus, right? But again, the spiritual point he's making is the dead are raised in Christ, not apart from Christ. Ephesians 2, 1, 4, and 5 say, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us made us alive with the Messiah, even though we were dead in trespasses. And Jesus says in John 5, he says, and just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so the son also gives life to anyone he wants to. I assure you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. We're going to see a physical illustration of this truth, this spiritual truth, in a matter of minutes, possibly hours. We don't really know how long between this conversation that Jesus had with Martha and, and he actually raised Lazarus. But there's a physical illustration of it because the dead are about to hear the voice of God and live. And then lastly, he who lives and believes shall never die. That's the last point that Jesus makes. Now, there's multiple interpretations of this. Both, I think, are true. Uh, certainly, and some people, here's what some, certain people say. Jesus is referring only to the end time right now. And that's truth in that if people are alive when Jesus returns, uh, and they are believers, they truly are saved, they don't experience physical death. You, they will pass from one existence to another instantly. That's a true statement. But again, I think Jesus is speaking more spiritually than he is physically here. And I think what he's saying is all who believe that have eternal life will never lose that salvation. They will never lose that life. And he backs this up in John 10, the chapter right before the one that we're reading. Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish ever. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my hand. The Father and I are one. So that's a lot of heavy theology packed into that one statement that Jesus makes. But why is he telling Martha this? Jesus is comforting Martha, consoling her, by revealing truth about who he is. And he's pointing Martha away from her circumstances to himself. That's what he's doing right now. He's trying to point out that nothing outside of Jesus will ever offer you lasting satisfaction and comfort. Not even changing your circumstances. Because guess what? 
Even after he raises Lazarus, Lazarus still dies again. We don't know how long he lived, but he's going to die again. And if Mary and Martha are around, they're going to go through this grief all over again. So he's saying, we should have greater hope in Jesus, the person of Jesus, who Jesus is, than what Jesus gives us, what Jesus blesses us with. That's a greater gift. He's asking Martha to look at him and not her circumstances. My favorite hymn is, has a chorus that says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will turn strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. My favorite hymn, I can't sing it without crying. Um, and that's exactly what Jesus is telling her right now. Martha, you are anxious about many things. He says that in an earlier chapter. He knows that she's an anxious believer. Always worried about her current circumstances and situation that she's in. And she's in a really tough place right now. Mourning, grieving. Anxious, angry maybe. I think we can ascribe to Martha the feelings we would have if one person could save our loved one, and they just didn't. But Jesus tells her why by revealing himself to her. And I think what we can take away from this is all of us are going through something, and we will always be going through something. We live in a broken, fallen world. And so we're always going to be faced with trials, tribulations, troubles. And I think what Jesus is saying, whether you're feeling guilt, shame, anger, frustration, confusion, sadness, grief, no matter what that is, he doesn't promise to deliver us from that. Don't put stock in deliverance from your troubles. He oftentimes delivers us. He does for me all the time. He delivers me. But he doesn't always. And what we need to remember is we need to put our hope in him as the person of Jesus, in who he truly is, in the truth that he shows us and reveals to us each and every day. Our hope is in Jesus, not in deliverance from our circumstances. So Jesus explains all of that and offers himself to Martha rather than deliverance. Now, look, we're going to move on here. And this is where he actually does deliver Martha from her troubles that she's in. But that's not the main point I don't think that Jesus wants to get through in this message here. So let's read, let's read verses 38 through 45 together. And then I just want to say a few words about that. Verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there's already a stench because it has been, he has been dead for four days. <laughs> I'm going to stop there just for a second. Mar Martha just told Jesus that she believes. She told Jesus that even now I know God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus is in front of the tomb about ready to resurrect Lazarus. And we see Martha's level of belief here, right? Her belief is muddled a little bit with her current circumstances, kind of like where her hope is. So rather than just say yes, she says, he stinks. Are you sure you want to roll away the, the stone, right? So we see that level of 
belief that Martha has, and I think a lot of us probably struggle with, we do believe in God. We've accepted Jesus as our Savior. We believe he's the Messiah. We believe he's the Son of God. And yet, that faith gets muddled with hope of deliverance from certain circumstances. So, I just wanted to, that's a free one, put that out there. Um, Martha says, there's already a stench because it's been, he's been dead four days. Jesus says to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me. But because of the crowd standing here, I said this so that they may believe you sent me. After he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, bound hand and foot, with linen strips, with face wrapped in cloth. Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did believed in him. So the last point, I think the last observation in this scripture about Jesus' divinity, him revealing himself, the truth of himself, him revealing God's glory, is in the fact that he has divine power. Jesus is almighty, all-powerful. He calls out to Lazarus to come out, and a dead man obeys the voice of Jesus. A dead man not only hears the voice, but responds, obeys the voice of Jesus. That's almighty power, certainly a supernatural miracle. The same voice that calls creation into existence, like we read in John 1, calls creation into existence from nothing. That same voice now calls out to a dead man, and that dead man wakes. That dead man becomes alive. That dead man is resurrected through the power of Jesus. And that same miraculous power that's demonstrated physically here happens every day. Every time someone comes to saving faith in Jesus, that same voice is calling that person to salvation. That same voice that goes out to the spiritually dead wakens that person, and that person responds. It's a miracle. It's the same miracle that these people on earth saw some 2,000 years ago with Jesus. Jesus told Martha she would see the glory of God, and I believe that she saw it just then, and her life thereafter would be completely different. And I love the question Jesus asked her, Martha, do you believe? I think we need to answer that same question. Those of us who are true believers, what is it that we believe about the person of Jesus? What is it that we believe about our salvation? What's the purpose for it? Why do we go through hard times? Why does God allow us to do that? We need to ask that same question, do you believe? It's good to ask that and answer and analyze our life and see if the way I act and speak, does it show that I believe that? This is a story of Jesus bringing a dead man back to life. But I would argue that that's not the greatest miracle here. 
I would argue that a self-existing, self-sufficient, ever-present, all-powerful, creator of all things from nothing, loves us so much that he cares to show us even a glimpse of his glory, that he cares to reveal the truth of who he is to us. That's a greater miracle in my humble opinion. And I think that not only this story reflects that, but the entirety of scripture. And so we need to search scripture in its entirety and see that coming out. The most loving act Jesus did was to show the world the glory of God, to reveal the truth about who he is and who God is. Now I can hear people argue, no, no, no. The most loving thing he did was to die. John 3, 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes will not perish but have eternal life. You won't get an argument from me that that's true. And I argue. I argue with everybody. So that's a good sign. But in John 17, Jesus describes what eternal life is in this. He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one that you have sent, Jesus Christ. He wraps it all up for us. True love is revealing God. It's giving us eternal life because forever, that's what we will be spending, if we're saved, the entirety of our eternal existence doing, knowing more and more and more about God. It won't be golfing, which, by the way, I am golfing with Kevin today. I know he's looking forward to that. I'm certainly looking forward to that. But it won't be golfing and shooting a perfect, perfect score, whatever you guys love to do, shooting, you know, rams or whatever you guys like to do. But it's knowing God more, more and more. That's our eternal life, according to Jesus. So by God doing everything for his glory, it's not self-serving. By him revealing his glory and doing everything for, like the Old Testament always says, for your name's sake, God, deliver us. For your name's sake, save us. He does everything for his name's sake. God's loving us in that because he's giving us the greatest gift that he can give us, himself. Amen. So I've got some homework. Homework for us today before I close in prayer. So for believers, consider God has a greater purpose for the circumstances, the troubles that you go through, you're in now, that you will be in the future. Pursue him more than deliverance from your problems. Because that's what we're called to do. That's what Jesus has revealed himself to us for. That's for believers. For people who are here that haven't committed their life to Jesus, Consider, Jesus might be calling you right now, whether you were dragged here or you came here willingly. Jesus might be reaching out to you, calling you to him, revealing himself to you. Understand, he's your only hope for resurrection from the dead. He's our only hope to have eternal life from our current situation, which is eternal death. Commit your life to him. Don't wait another day. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you're here with us. God, I thank you that you reveal yourself to us in the form of sending your son to us, but in giving your name to us. 
by walking with us through our faith and Jesus, even giving us hard times, carrying us through circumstances so that we can grow in our faith. So our faith increases. But not only that, God, so that the world can see how we face troubles and that they might turn to you for their salvation. God, that's, that's why you allow us to go through so much. It's for your glory, for your purpose. But ultimately, God, your glory means our satisfaction and our happiness, true happiness that's lasting and our only hope for life with you eternal. Thank you, Lord, in your son's name. Amen. Thank you, Tom. It was a wonderful message just reminding us that Jesus is the, the resurrection and the, and the life. And one of the, the beautiful things about today is that we get to honor that Jesus is the resurrection and the life because today is Communion Sunday for us. So if, um, if you have not had a chance to do so, we are going to be taking communion. We do have communion cups in the, in the back if you need one. I also want to encourage that if you are here visiting with us, maybe you're just kind of checking this out and you're like, I don't even know what communion is. That's, that's okay. I don't want you to feel pressure obligated to have to do something like this. Um, if you want to just observe and, and see what this is all about, then we welcome you to either take part or, or just to, to watch and see if this is something that you want to lean into. Just as uh, Tom was sharing with us, maybe God has brought you here at this time because he is seeking you out because he wants to be your resurrection in life as well. So we've been talking, we've uh, been in these uh, I am statements, and we've talked, uh, obviously, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He, we've, uh, the past couple of weeks, we've also heard Jesus say, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. But I also want to offer this one. Maybe it's one that we don't think about very often, and, and you might want to say, you know what, that's just not right, but, but hear me out here. Another name for Jesus is sin. And what I mean by that is this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's what communion signifies. That Jesus became our sin. He took it to the cross for us. He did what we could not do ourselves. Now think about this for a second. That if Jesus became sin, if he was the one who knew no sin and became sin, think for a second of the worst thing that you have done. The worst sin that you have had in your life. And maybe you're thinking, I can't even think of one. I, I can think of a lot of them. Well, join the club. That would be me too. Jesus became that. He went to the cross to die for that. This is not a moment to say how guilty we are. This is a moment to say how amazing and how loving God is that he would be willing to say, you know what? I will become that on the cross so that you might be put into a right relationship with God once again. And why do I know this is not about guilt? Because this is what it says in Hebrews 12 too. It says, Jesus, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Yes, we were guilty in our sins. 
And sin, God said, has to be punished because he is a perfect God. And anything that is imperfect, even just the slightest, cannot stand in his presence. But instead, he chose grace. He chose love over our sin. And if he was going to focus all in on our sin, why would he have joy to go to the cross? That's true love right there, that he loved us so much that he would take our place and be the punishment for our sins, accept the punishment for our sin. So that's why we take communion today, to remember what Jesus did for us 2,000-some years ago. So I want to take a moment right now that we would just prepare our hearts And if there's anything that you need to confess, if there's anything you need to lay down before God, take this moment so that we can be in a right heart before we take communion together. So let's just take a moment. When Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples, he took bread, which signified his body, and he said, take, eat, this is my body. So let's take this bread together. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Let's take the juice together. Would you pray with me? Father God, we are, we are not worthy We are not worthy for the sacrifice that you made for us. We are not worthy of the love that you have shed for us, Lord. Yet you have made us worthy through your son, Jesus Christ. You have shown that you love us, and it is not about whether we are perfect or not. It is about how perfect you are, about how good you are. And we thank you that you did for us what we could not do ourselves that you saved us from our sins, that you forgave us for our sin. Thank you, Lord God, that whether it be a sin in the past, a sin now, or a sin in the future, that you died on the cross once, once for all so that we could be saved and put in right relationship with you. We pray, Lord God, if there is any here who, who need to take that step of faith and, and, and make you first and accept this gift of grace, that this would be the day that they do that, Lord. But again, we thank you. Help us, Lord, to honor you daily for the sacrifice that you have made, Lord. Amen. We're going to enter into worship right now, but we're going to do something a little bit differently because communion is a a very holy time. It's a time to really connect with God. So we're going to ask our prayer team to come up now. They're going to be over in the the far corners each. And if, if you just want prayer, then come on up during worship. This might be a time where God is really speaking and really leaning into you. 
So I encourage you as we worship to also pray and meet with our Lord.